Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December 2nd, 2016. This is episode 1909 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it is time for the Expert Council Q&A. And this will actually clear out uh, all of the stuff I have from the Expert Council. And uh, so I'll have to get a whole new round of questions off to them. So now would be a good time to get your questions in for the Expert Council. Just a quick reminder of who the Expert Council is and what they do. I need to say that on the air once in a while because some of you guys never go to the blog and read anything. First up, we have Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy of doomandbloom.net. Uh, they can answer all your questions about survival medicine. and They're close personal friends of the family, and we just got some really good news from them. They actually have a home uh, in Gatlinburg. They don't live there full-time, but they have kind of a, a place up that way. And uh, they were pretty sure their house had been uh, destroyed in these fires, and it turns out it's, it's, it's untouched. So hoo-ah. Uh, ben Falk from Home Systems Design can answer your questions about permaculture, specifically cold climate, cold humid climate, northeastern permaculture. Gary Collins of the Primal Peril Method can answer your questions about health and nutrition and off-grid living and uh, the travel lifestyle, the primal paleo lifestyle, all that good stuff. Keith Snow can answer all your questions about cooking. Darby Simpson can answer all your questions about full-time farming for profit, livestock management, specifically pastured poultry, pork, and beef. Stephen Harris can answer pretty much any question you have, but he really uh, specializes in energy and uh, backup power and uh, things like that. Michael Jordan can answer all your questions about beer and mead making. Nick Ferguson can answer all your questions about permaculture, uh, small-scale homesteading, rabbits, goats, you name it, stuff like that. John Pugliano of the Wealthsteading Podcast uh, can answer all your questions about investing in money management and economics. Paul Wheaton uh, gives us updates from time to time from what's going on up in the wilds of Montana. Jeff Lawton is the man when it comes to permaculture in all climates and indeed all over the world. Erica Strauss of Northwest Edible Life, she can answer your questions on small-scale urban homesteading, cooking, uh, food preservation, you name it. Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus can answer all your questions about military surplus gear. Uh, bug-out vehicles, alternative fuels, and ham radio communications. Brian Black from ITS Tactical. If it's tactical, you can ask Brian about it. Mike and Sue LaPreeze of Halo by Sue can answer all your questions about homeschooling and raising uh, resilient children in a, mark, uh, in a world uh, that we have today. So those are the people. The questions that we're going to have answered today are stuff we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about running a remote cow and calf operation with Jeff Lawton, dealing with wilt blight and fungus with Nick Ferguson, Dealing with parasites and sheep and goats with Ben Falk. Living in a travel trailer with Gary Collins. Mites versus the bees for Michael Jordan. And I'm going to answer a question on UBI or universal basic income. And not whether we should do it or not, but let's say it did happen. Would it actually cause what people think it would cause, which is basically everybody sit around on their butt and do nothing? Or might it cause actually a migration from the cities to small rural communities and a thriving ecosystem? It might. We'll talk about that as the cleanup batter of the show. I'll do that. Uh, before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. 
Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more, up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics, homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it, that type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. And our business directory sponsor of the day is Ortwine International, a certified factory armorer serving civilian and law enforcement and military markets. They have law enforcement equipment offices in Michigan, Oregon, and Washington. You can visit their website through the link at the TSP Business Directory. And remember, you can have your business listed in the directory uh, for as little as five bucks per six months. And it's a great way to find people to do business with right in our TSP community. Again, that's at tspbiz.com. Next up, the year that was the episode of the year is 1909 because the episode is 1909. We have two from Alex Shrug today. Black Herman and the Dead Pirate Roberts. We have Taking Social Responsibility for a New America. Notable Births. Barry Goldwater, presidential candidate and author of The Conscious of, Conscious of a Conservative. Saul Alinsky, community organizer and author of The Rules for Radicals. Leo Fender, grab your Stratocasters. It's the founder of Fender Guitars. Anne Southern, actress best known to me as the voice of Tin Lizzie and my mother, the car. In other news, 20 to 30,000 Armenians are murdered. This is not Armenian genocide, but it's coming. Robert Perry reaches the North Pole. Maybe authorities will go back and forth into the modern day. And London hairdressers offer the permanent wave. The movie Legally Blonde will explore the chemical reactions required to hold hair in a permanent wave. Nuclear physics is easier to comprehend. Again, just the names, Saul Linsky, Barry Goldwater, Leo Fender. We're starting to see names of, of people being born that we recognize. And we are well into a period of time now, 1909, where people are alive today that were alive then. Not a lot of them. You'd have to be, I think, 107 years old. But we are moving rapidly into a world where people are still around. And I think most of us that are, let's say are in our 40s or older, we've known people in our lives that have told us about these times. So history is indeed catching up with us as we move through the episodes. Uh, I'm going to read Taking Social Responsibility for a New America because it's it's interesting to look at from the before lens. We can definitely see it from the after lens, as Alex points out. It takes more than a progressive educational system to turn a self-reliant nation into a sniveling welfare state. To really mess things up, you need new laws that will push the public into the light. Herbert Crowley publishes the book The Promise of American Life. He sees America as generally good, but has lost its way. Its blundering has caused a lot of damage, and his book is a plea for Americans to take responsibility, social responsibility. 
Yes, he uses that exact phrase. Some sacrifices are required if the promise of America, what we would call the American dream, can be fulfilled. The dream should not remain a lofty goal without purpose. Americans should not be like the Europeans who encourage an easy and generous and irresponsible optimism. And so it goes. His writing style is typical of the time. Tedious. We might safely ignore this book, except that a particularly influential fellow reads the book and loves it. Theodore Roosevelt. Republican. The progressive era has begun. My take by Alex Shrugged. Remember, we can see into the past. We know what is coming. They cannot. Herbert Crowley was the founder of the New Republic, which supported Stalin. However, the real crime is what Stalin's supporters did after he was revealed as a mass murderer. Mostly, the gutless uh, supporters went silent. A few brave souls owned up and pushed hard the other way. Communist David Horowitz turned into a conservative after a stint with the Black Panthers. Irving Kristol became the follower of neoconservatism and Bill Kristol. And there were a few others who realized that progressivism is a fraud and abandoned the Democrats. In the presidential campaign against candidate Obama, Hillary Clinton declared herself to be a progressive of the 1920s. The early progressives did not realize how unforgiving and violent true socialism would turn out to be, but Hillary knew, yet she claimed kinship with that movement. She scares the stuffing out of me. Whatever Mr. Trump may be, I think we dodged a bullet. Um, I'm not going to weigh in much on politics because I promised I wouldn't through the rest of the year, and I'm sick of it. Uh, but I will say this. I don't know that Hillary's a progressive. I don't know what she is. Because if you listen to Hillary, she says, in the words of Barack Obama, whatever she thought would get her elected is what she said. So you don't really know what she is. Because uh, she's been all over the map with her positions. The bullet that I think we've dodged is I haven't heard her shrill, freaking annoying voice at all since the election. And I can thank Mr. Trump for that, if nothing else. Even if he screws everything else up, I don't have to hear her mouth. And I'm pretty happy about that. I know I've just pissed some of you off. And guess what? I don't care. If you've been listening for any length of time, you already knew that. Anyway, um, you know, my take on this is that it's amazing to me that people still think this is the answer when there's so many examples of how horrible it always ends up. And yet people still cling to the idea. And yet people cling to the op uh, oppositional idea of modern neoconservatism. And you look at all of the damage it's done. You know, true, we don't have a whole lot of people that were uh, of the Republican bent of the right wing that killed all of the people that, that, that were in their own country or anything. But a lot of damage has been done by it too. And it seems that We're just placed in the dichotomy by happenstance. You have to pick a side. That's, that's what you're told. I'm going to continue to not pick a side. I'm going to continue to seek that which is best for myself, my family, my community. And from a philosophical standpoint, even though I don't have any real influence over it, for society as a whole. And it certainly isn't stealing from one to give to another. That, that, that's certainly not a good idea, and both sides seem... Perfectly okay with it, my take by Jack Spierko. Just how much and from whom is what gets debated. So with that, let's uh, get into the main topic of today's show. My first question today is for Jeff Lawton, and it's from a person that wants to run basically a remote cow and calf operation, have a pretty good piece of land, but it's not a place they get to be all the time. So with that, Jeff, please take it away. 
Hi, Jeff Lawton here, and I'm coming to you from the Middle East in Jordan, where I'm working on some projects here and teaching and running a consultancy. So um, my first question here is coming in from VR from Oklahoma. He's got a 62-acre property, 40 uh, acres of pasture and 22 woods. Um, and he's in north, that property is in north-central Texas. Uh, clay soil, 46 inches of rainfall. And a um, quarter acre of well-placed uh, ponds. And um, it's approximately 500 feet above sea level. But the property is 85 miles from where his house is, so he can only visit weekly. Uh, it's not his homestead. And he wants to run 10 cow-calf operation next year. Probably is overrun by weeds. And it lacks cross-fencing. And um, the local NRCS uh, office... Uh, County Ag Office has recommended they spray the weeds, replant with uh, Bermuda, Bermuda grass and cross fence. Um, he agrees with the recommendations except he doesn't want to spray and the weeds and, and he'd like to brush hog the weeds in spring uh, but since the property is far from his house he may not get ahead of the weeds uh, with frequent brush hogging. Do you have any recommendations to control the weeds? Now without cross-fencing the cattle on the property. Well, actually, you're on the right track. Um, it's, um, no, it's not VR. It's, uh, I think it's Jose. Sorry about that. Um, it's Jose, this question. Um, right. Now, uh, bush hogging, slashing the weeds down um, is, is the way to go. And then uh, concentrating cell grazing your animals across there um, the problem is you need to be there um, and um, that will definitely work uh, brush hogging it down um, slashing those weeds down and then cell grazing but you need need tight cell grazing you need to move it regularly uh, and once a week with 10 cows might not be enough concentration it's going to have some effect um, we like to move more regularly than that it will depend on your climate and how fast it's coming back, how fast the regrowth is. It, it will be slower in your, in your slower growing months, which is probably your winter. I'm not sure there, but um, it might be summer actually. It might be it'll be slower in summer and faster in winter. It depends when your, your, your pasture growth is fastest. Um, we find electric fences work really well. Um, and, and instead of putting up cross fences, putting up a laneway, a cattle laneway, and um, <clears throat> and that being hardwired and electrified uh, with a, um, a solar electric system and there's some good ones today, powerful ones and then you run a set of temporary gates off or, or, or um, elastic gates or spring gates that are electrified as well on set distances down the laneway and then run out a temporary fence with what we call pigtail temporary fences trade in fence posts and um, electric uh, tape the cattle get used to it, um, they don't often escape, and um, they get used to the fact you're coming back to move them. You can run your water line down the, um, down the electric laneway, it makes it really flexible, and you can even, like say, tuna farm, we've threaded um, <clears throat> nearly two mile of, of, of laneway right the way around the farm, over dam walls, and through um, all kinds of complicated, diverse features. And we've got um, something like 142 
cells that we can run the animals through and they get really used to it and we've we've taken out all kinds of weed systems without spray simply by running the cattle over it and then slashing um that's the way we'd normally do it let the cattle in get what they want um leave what they don't want then you know you're hitting the right thing slash that down with the manure watch it carefully um before it gets to flower again Hit it, hit it, hit it again, so you haven't got a, any any weed seeded, and um, you'll knock it out. One way to speed that up would be to uh, use a uh, a chisel plow. Could be a yeoman's plow. It doesn't have to be. Um, run from ridges out to uh, run from valleys out to ridges at a two two percent um, two degree or two percent fall. Doesn't really matter. Just off contour. Or if you've just got a straight hillside, run it roughly at, at contour on parallel rip lines. If you haven't got any ridges and valleys, you're just the side of a hill. And that will speed up the process of, of eliminating the weeds. So whatever you do, um, um, you can probably get ahead of the NRCS and uh, get the uh, weeds under control, even if you're only visiting once a month. But, um, you know, um, or once a week you can you can make it a mission to bush hog behind the cows once a week um, even if you don't have cross fences I would just get in there and uh, and bush hog the worst weeds um, each week um, working the way towards the, the better areas and then just keep your eye on it every week and uh, make it a mission um, to um, suppress the weeds until you've got your uh, cell grazing system set up and I definitely look into the idea of doing the laneway it's been the best addition um, to broadacre um, fertility increase on our farm um, that's for sure Okay, next question is for someone uh, from for someone from someone for Nick Ferguson uh, that has been dealing with a lot of problems like wilt and blight in their gardening, and they want to know how to correct it and what to do about it. With that, hey Nick Ferguson, man, take it away. Hey guys, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. This week, I'm answering a question on combating wilt, blight, and fungus. Well, Scott, I would probably pare things down, I'd switch to the most disease-resistant hybrids for next year, I'd get intensive with one single garden plot and be masterful with that one plot, and with all the rest of your garden plots, I would solarize and build healthy soil all season long, and hopefully that will take care of those soil-borne diseases. Be careful about cross-contaminating the multiple garden plots with the one um, that you're working with uh, after you've solarized. And uh, I would disinfect your garden tools with some bleach water or boiling water for about a minute, 60 seconds or so. Get them nice and hot. Um, probably the, the bleach water is the easiest thing. And then the following year, solarize the garden plot from the prior year that didn't get the treatment. And you might want to start rotating plots. I know you said you rotate uh, garden, uh, I think your garden veggies, but if you – Keep one of those or a couple of those in a completely different type of crop that's more like a monocrop or just like a cover crop mix, something like a good uh, pea crop or multiple types of 
legumes and grasses, you know, annual grasses, stuff like that. Um, and if you do that every other year or so, then it'll really help to break up that disease cycle. Healthy covered soils that are rich in bacterial and fungal life will help combat those diseases for you. But I say hitting the reset switch to restore balance is probably the best move right now. Now, I want to make some comments on solarizing, what it is and what it is not. It is not a management style. It's not a strategy for gardening. Um, an example of a management style would be annual tillage or biannual double digging or deep mulching or lasagna gardening, row cropping, plastic mulching. Those things are like management styles. That's an annual thing that you do every single year. A strategy is something like mulching, hoeing, etc., you know, things like that. And in my mind, something like a pesticide, whether it's synthetic or natural or physical, is a tool. I lump solarizing into the tool category. It's a specific technique or tool that's used with a specific means to accomplish a specific goal. You can solarize with glass or clear plastic. You don't solarize like I'm talking about with an opaque plastic or tarps. That's a different tool and different results will occur. It's it's something very different. There's similarities, but the end result is different. So to use an analogy, you don't take a Honda Civic to a gravel pit to load dump trucks with gravel. It's not designed to accomplish the job of loading a dump truck. Use a front-end loader or an excavator, something like that, or a, a skid steer or a tractor with a front-end loader bucket. So when I'm saying solarize the ground, the purpose here is to achieve high temperatures in the top six to eight inches of soil for the purpose of killing soil-borne pathogens and biota and plants, of course, seeds, things like that. Will it kill a lot of good soil critters? Yes. And before anybody starts typing angry emails about killing all the soil life, let me stop you right there. This method will heat the soil up between 140 and 160 degrees Fahrenheit. It'll get nice and hot. So let's apply some logic here. If a good thermophilic compost pile achieves the same temperature threshold and good compost is full of good bacteria and fungi applied to this situation, by that same logic, it's not killing off all the beneficial microbes. So back to the clear plastic. Don't use black. Don't use creamy color. Don't use tarps or billboard tarps. All of those are great for covering the soil and keeping it nice and humid and promoting soil life. But all they do is make a humid, dark, somewhat cool environment, or in the case of black plastic, it heats up the top inch or so moderately. To achieve what I'm talking about, you got to use clear plastic or glass, something clear, where we're going for a greenhouse effect. If you cover a greenhouse in black plastic... And right next to it, you make another greenhouse covered in clear plastic, and they're both sealed up. Which one's going to be hotter? The one covered in black plastic or the one covered in clear? It's going to be the one covered in clear because it lets in more solar energy and it traps more heat. Yes, the black plastic is going to be hotter on its surface, but it's not going to capture as much solar energy as letting that solar energy go through it, and then heat up something and be trapped. So hit up a greenhouse supplier online and see if they have remnants for their greenhouse film. You know, that 
stuff that they use on greenhouses. It's a heavier gauge plastic. It'll hold up to the UV. It's UV stabilized, unlike that stuff that you get from uh, hardware box stores. Um, so it should do a lot better job. And you need to get a thermometer that you can put out there and stick in the ground. Amazon sells a milk frothing thermometer that has a handy red section from 140 to 160. It shows you, like, just the, it's the perfect area. And that lets you know when you're hitting the right temps. Another important tip is to make sure it gets water in very well before you solarize. Wet heat is much more harmful to the pathogens than a dry heat. Make sure you don't have holes in the plastic. Weigh down the ends and the sides and keep dogs and kids off of it. They'll put holes in it and that'll let it ventilate, which is the opposite of what we want to do. We don't want it to ventilate. We want it to stay hot and trap as much heat as possible. So to summarize, I'd shut down all but one of the garden plots to solarize and then apply compost and mulch after you've done that. Um, if you have them heavily covered in mulch, you have to get the mulch off before you solarize or else you're just you're insulating it and you're not going to get the soil hot like you need to do it. So I'd pull all that mulch off, compost it, a nice hot thermophilic compost. Make sure you get it good and hot to kill any pathogens hiding in that mulch. And then after you've solarized the soil, apply good healthy compost, mulch it heavily with some good fresh mulch to prepare for the 2017 fall gardening season. And then you do the same process to the one garden plot that you kept growing in uh, in 2017, you do that same process in 2018. So I would focus on soil health and building healthy bacterial life. In the future, avoid synthetic fertilizers that favor pathogenic life. Learn how to make really good compost and make compost tea to use as a foliar spray every week. That will help a lot as a preventative and it will help crowd out the pathogens. The more good bacteria you have hanging around, the less room there is for the bad stuff. That about covers it, I think. But if you have any follow-up questions, either email me, Nick, at homegrownliberty.com or head over to the Facebook group, Homegrown, that's one word, Homegrown Liberty is the second word. Um, And if you haven't already, check out my podcast. I have a new episode every Friday on all sorts of things, homesteading, gardening, liberty-mindedness, including some consulting episodes where listeners call in with questions like this on their properties, and I help them figure things out. Great question. Keep them coming, guys. Do good things. You know, Nick's always been great, but since he started doing his own podcast, he's getting a lot better behind the mic. I mean, not that he ever didn't need it, but yet, improvement's improvement, and he, he's starting to sound really great and really comfortable. You should check out his podcast. He's doing a great job with it. Uh, just awesome stuff, man. So next question we have is for Ben Falk. I know we're kind of in the agricultural world today, and, and we will be for one more. Uh, then it'll kind of shift a little bit, but I have a uh, question for Ben Falk. And, you know, I think I missed Stephen Harris in the intro segment, but we'll have a question for Stephen Harris as well today uh, toward the end of the show. Anyway, this question is for Ben Falk, and it's on dealing with parasites in sheep, and uh, it equally applies to goats. Hey, Jack and all, Ben Falk with Whole System Design. Question about um, sheep, basically sheep parasites seems like the main um thrust of the question here um she it's a major problem with caprines you know sheep and goats well many animals many domestic animals parasites are kind of the one of the main issues but caprines especially are really um tend to be problematic although katahdins are supposed to be among the better 
um, options for parasites. But you're in northwest Ohio, humid climate, lots of heat, great parasite growing, perpetuating conditions in your pasture, um, except when you're having drought, which probably isn't that infrequent anymore, but it's still an issue. Um, and f- raising up animals from, from the lamb stage with as, as healthy of an environment as possible, as you can imagine, is very important. It's really, can be really hard to work with older animals and bring them back into health if they've just been managed poorly their whole life. Like ultimately the best herds that I know of and where we started to get with our herd, although it was only, uh, you know, about three and a half years in was to, to breed in parasite resistance. And that takes time. That doesn't take a year or two, you know, um, that takes a lot longer. So ultimately if you're in it for the long haul, you want to be starting with lambs and raising up your herd because no one's going to give you a good animal. So it's a little bit of an aside, but just something to be aware of. You'll always be kind of fighting an uphill battle unless you're, you know, keeping the best and eating the rest, as Jody Roebuck likes to say. Um, just like with garlic or any seed, you know, you, you don't want to perpetuate your animals having problems. That being said, we've had good luck with treating intestinal parasites with sheep um, in the following way, and I know a lot of people have garlic. You can buy a garlic product or you can just use garlic um, that you grow. It's, you know, so it's such an easy crop to grow. We'd mince it up. We'd um, soak it in a little bit of oil just to take the um, the harshness of it on the stomach out. And I do that personally as well and also with our dogs. Garlic is such good medicine, but it is hard on the gut. And soaking it, sprinkling a little salt on it, letting it sit for 5, 10 minutes, half a day with the salt on it, the moisture kind of is expressed into the salt. Some of the um, harshness seems to come out and then you let it soak in oil ideally for a day plus and it, it becomes less more agreeable to the gut i found personally and I, I don't see why that wouldn't be the same for a sheep gut um so process your garlic like that and then use it you know get it into the sheep um be careful with dogs by the way we do administer garlic to dogs but they're not supposed to get more than half a clove a day um and the way whatever way you can get into the sheep the you know, is, is a good one. As far as I know, we would mix it with a little grain, which they liked, or molasses, or actually um, minerals was what we would normally do, like um, kelp, you know, ground up kelp. They really like that because I think they know how good it is for them. So we'd mix the garlic in with that. And you could also put your DE, your diatomaceous earth in with that, which we would also use. Um, and then apple cider vinegar. Those three things really seem to be the anti-parasitic of choice for a lot of, you know, organic and biologically uh, appropriate, you know, caprine raising. Um, not that you should limit yourself to that. I mean, there's a lot of great antiparasitics um, in, you know, the herbal medicine world, like um, black walnut hull tincture is, is kind of well known, but there's many. Um, because it's such an issue in the world and for thousands of years people have been dealing with it. So take a look into kind of the herbal pharmacopoeia. Juliet de Barclay Levy has a really seminal book and it's a classic on kind of holistically caring for animal health. And I would definitely look into that and have a copy if you have animals because she has a lot of, a lot of really sensible ideas and specifics. And some of, some of the stuff I think I, I take with a grain of salt, um, 
I don't take it all completely literally, but in general, it's it's a real classic, and it has a lot of good good stuff to learn out of that book. I forget the name of the book, but uh, the, that's the author, Juliet de Barclay Levy. She's an old homeopath and kind of naturopath, but she's a vet as well. Um, so, as far as books. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know which ones are out there. I would just look to like herbal, you know, like human herbal and holistic care, not just animal. Although I'm sure there's a lot of resources out there. I don't think you need to pay me for a consultation. You had that in your question. <laughs> um, I'm not particularly a, a sheep expert anyway, but hopefully that's helpful to you. There's a lot of good info, info out there on on those three approaches. Good luck. And also, of course, rotating really well is important, and you want to find out from your, your local extension service should have good information about the amount of um, rest you need to break the parasite cycle and actually have parasites die in your field. Now, of course, the more it's raining, the wetter it is, the longer that rotation is. You know, you may have really hot, dry weather in August where in 45 days you could put animals back on the land they were on and the parasites are dead. It also has to do with how how much they've grazed it down, with what kind of parasites you're talking in particular, and with what kind of um, pasture. You know, everything's all, all, of course, connected. So, But in general, up here in Vermont, we try to go 90 days between grazing, and that's a long time. That's not even necessarily the best for the land, but it's best for the animals. So mowing can become kind of necessary or at least helpful for pasture management in between because, of course, in late June, you go 90 days and you're at, you know, you're losing palatableness in the pasture because that's such a long rest. Um, So it gets very kind of complex, but something to keep in mind. Um, Best of luck to you and uh, thanks for the question. So I'll just throw in a, a quick additional strategy uh, for these long uh, duration rests when dealing with parasites. If you can bring in another stock animal that will in some way graze or impact that pasture, that the parasites are incompatible between the two. And I'm not an expert at ruminants and large livestock and all, but for instance, let's say that one could be grazing pigs behind the sheep and that pigs and sheep don't share these common parasites. Again, I'm not saying they don't or they do. I don't actually know. But there would be certainly some animal that could be grazed behind the sheep that would share a non-common parasitic uh, host. And that would enable you to not have to mow or scythe or what have you uh, and still break that parasitic cycle. So that would be just like one thing I would add on to the end there to consider uh, checking into and finding out what would work in your climate for your goals and whatever. And that won't work for everybody because there's some people like I'd rather get a tractor and slash, you know, once or twice a season than deal with another group of animals because I only have so much time and resources and whatever. And that's fine, too. Just just a thought there. Uh, next question we have is for Gary Collins, and it's from a person that's wanting to build a, a homestead, and uh, but it's going to be there while doing it, and needs a place to live and wants to live in a travel trailer while they do it, and they know Gary has done that, so they want some advice, tips, and you know, kind of what it's like, uh, words of wisdom from someone that's done it. So Gary, with that, take it away. 
Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and AJ has a question about living in your travel trailer while you build your off-the-grid house or a house in general. And he's thinking of getting an Airstream and living in it as he builds his house, but he's unfamiliar. He's never done trailer living. And uh, actually, AJ, I still live in my travel trailer. Um, I plan to live in it half the year pretty much for a long time and travel around. So I've become quite acquainted with travel trailers. I'm on my third one, actually, over the years. And this one is an upgrade. I bought it uh, last year because my other one did, didn't did have adequate insulation, and actually the plumbing would freeze pretty easily. Now, an Airstream, like I said, I don't know how the insulation value is in them. I know they're expensive. I looked at them. They're really expensive. Uh, but I would look and ask if there's an Airstream, if that's the way you're going to go, if it's an all-season. Travel trailers, when you get into them, they are, oh, there's a bazillion different brands, different quality. Uh, there's four-season, which is a little lighter than an all all weather or all seasons, and then there's just a general travel trailer, and they all have different levels of insulation. Now, I have, like I said, an all-season, which is the trailer I use people live in Alaska with it. It's pretty rugged. It's made in Oregon. It, it, it's in Nash. It's pretty well known uh, for living in more, you know, more severe weather. So mine's very well insulated. I haven't had any issues with any of the pipes freezing, but also I'm attached I don't dry camp, and I did not live in my trailer at my property, so I was not dry camping or doing anything. I was plugged in, and I was at an RV park down below my property, so I always had heat and had electric and had everything running in it. Now, to stop your pipes from freezing, you know, it's actually a lot simpler than you think. The, the weak point, if you're not dry camping and you're actually hooked up to water and power on, and all that, is actually the hose. The hose doesn't have any insulation, and the hose goes from just a normal, you know, water bib, you know, a faucet bib, you know, just like your outside garden hose, and then it just screws right into your travel trailer. And that is a weak link. So that can freeze on you, but that doesn't necessarily mean the water in your trailer has frozen. If you, like I said, if it's insulated, and what you do to keep your, your pipes from freezing on the inside is just keep the heat on. You don't have to keep it on real high, you know, 50 degrees, 55 degrees when you're not around. And actually, I'm getting ready to leave for a month, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave my my heater on at 55 degrees so the internal pipes won't freeze. And they shouldn't anyway, and if they do, it's actually – they're made um, they're made now to where – they're they're not metal piping. It, it, well, I don't know about the old air streams. I don't believe so, but uh, you know they're they're not going to burst on you, and they shouldn't. So I would worry about the garden hose. And the one way to do that is try and you can you can either insulate the garden hose. And I've seen people who set up actually permanent. They I've known people and still know people who live in their travel trailer. I mean, they have hooked it up. They've bought a lot, and they live in it. It's just like their house. And what they do is they just bury it. They actually hook up, uh, you know, PVC water or water pipe, a plastic pipe, run it underneath the frost line, which if you're in a cold climate, it's going to be 36 inches or further. In a normal climate, it's like 18 inches. And you just run it, and they run it up, and they insulate both exposed ends. 
so that won't freeze. And you can also wrap those exposed ends. We actually had to do this with our water heater growing up where I grew up in the sticks, is you wrap around a cell uh, heated tape. So what it does is it wraps around the pipe and then you plug it in and it's actually just basically wire that heats up So and it keeps that a decent temperature so your pipes won't freeze. So I don't think you're going to have to do anything extreme as far as you're talking about getting a, a Jim Jenkins, you know, style bucket composting toilet, water, all that stuff. You you shouldn't have to do that. Like I said, just keep the heat at a decent temperature. And if you can, get an all-season. If you're going to live in a place where it's cold, live in an all-season. First of all, the difference between the amount of, of heat I have to use to keep this, or cooling even, at a decent temperature is night and day between the the, the first trailer I had compared to this one. This trailer is so well insulated, it takes far less uh heating and cooling to keep it at a good temperature. Well, AJ, I hope that answers uh, your question. Uh, and oh, also, I forgot you, you talked about drainage and all that. Like I said, if you're if you're camping in an RV, all that stuff's taken care of. We call it the stinky slinky. That hooks up to your septic, which is an outside pipe of your, your travel trailer or fifth wheel, whatever you're using. Um, that's how you do that. Now, if you don't and you're dry camping, your 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 travel trailer fifth wheel is going to come with tanks, and what happens is your your solids and liquids, your gray water, which is your you know your shower water, your sink water, all that good stuff, and then your black water tank is where your your poo and pee goes. So those are separate tanks, and you have to empty those. And here's the catch: unless you got a septic system already put on your property that you can plug it into and drain it, you're gonna have to haul that trailer out and go find a dumping station. And you'll see them there at rest stops and RV parks, and you can find them, but it is a big pain. You do not want to do that if you got to go dump your, your sewage, or you would have to find some way of putting it in a big gallon, 50-gallon drum or something, uh, which is not real practical. But I hope that answers your question. And uh, there's... Uh, when it comes to travel trailer and our, or uh, fifth wheel living, you just got to kind of figure it out. There's a bunch of people out there who are doing it. Actually, I went my first time in an RV park. I was clueless. I didn't know what I was doing. And the people next to me helped me out and showed me what to do and how everything works. And the place where you buy your trailer, if you buy it from a dealer, they'll show you as well. Or even the person you buy it from, if they've used it a lot, they'll know. So I hope that helps. And uh, if you have any other questions about travel trailer living, hit it up in the comment section. Thanks. So if you end up in the position where you can't just open the lid on a septic and put your, you know, your your travel trailer uh, uh, hoses for your your black and gray water down into it while you're doing this, and you and you don't want to drag the trailer out to dump it, there actually is a solution, and there are are basically portable tanks that are made for people that have this problem. Uh, they're referred to colloquially as honeypots. Yeah. Um, but if you just Google honeypot for travel trailer, you'll find all different types of models and different sizes. Most of them have wheels to make them easier to move. Uh, some of them actually have kind of a handle so you can move them kind of like a little trailer. Uh, you can get them up into the back of a pickup truck or something like that and take them somewhere and dump them out. <laughs> uh, for what it's worth, 
Most Cabela's, if you have a Cabela's nearby, have a dumping station, believe it or not. Uh, I know this because we had some friends that stayed here for a period of time, and they had a huge uh, Class A mobile home. This thing was big, and getting it onto my property was difficult. It involved pruning trees and uh, some amazing driving uh, by one of them, uh, this, this gal, Barb, that, that I think one of her jobs in the past was driving school buses and stuff. This lady could drive. I mean, I think she had a couple inches on both sides as she came through my gate and around the corner. And it was stressful enough that they didn't want to do it. So that was the approach they took. They were here for like nine weeks. And they took the approach of getting one of these honey pots and, and making runs to dump whenever they had to. Uh, because their initial thought was they were going to dig a deep enough hole to just dump it in the ground here. You guys know that's not going to happen here. Um, so... With that in mind, it's not fun, and if you're going to build a homestead, you're going to need a sewage solution, and if you're going to live in a travel trailer, I'm just going to say I'd prioritize that sewage solution because you can start using that right away. I'd put that in before I put the foundation of the house in if I was going to be living in a travel trailer just to make my life easier, but that's me. That's just how I think. Uh, next question is for Michael Jordan on dealing with mites as a beekeeper. With that, Michael, take it away. Hey, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Hey, I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. My question is, what is your solution with dealing with farola mites in your beehives? I'm a new beekeeper in New Hampshire. I've recently installed a package of bees into my new hive. I wanted to take preventative steps for controlling varroa mites in the colony this spring and summer. I've researched solutions ranging from chemical strips placed in the hives to smoking the hives with oleic acid, but I'm not sure what's the best approach, and I'm hoping that you have some advice. Thanks, Charles in New Hampshire. Well, Charles, prevention is different from eradication. Prevention of mites is why people are using teramycin and epistan strips at large commercial industries. This is made to keep the mites away from the hive and do not let them grow if they do get in. Eradication of the mites is when your hive is infested and you have to do something with them and you're looking to take them all out. You're asking about strips or oleic acid for prevention of getting mites. I talked about using rhubarb leaves for oleic acid and even using stillinging nettle as folic acid to keep the mites out. I have looked into many methods of using natural ways of defeating the mites. Olic acid is the best, not only for prevention, but also for eradication. In July 2001, or July 21st, 2015, in Bee Culture magazine, they had a good article called Winter Bees and Formic Acid. Use right in a successful combination. Test shows clearly how important late summer or early autumn treatment is for the health and survival of your colonies over the winter. To treat against varroa successfully, it is crucial that you may monitor the treatment successfully after the treatment has been finalized, doing it a couple times. Formic acid and MAQS, which means mite away quick strips, beehive strips is an organic acid that is not soluble in wax or honey, and vaporizes over time. So this is a good thing. 
So let's get right into your, your asking about should you use the strips? Well, you can. And Bee Culture Magazine is showing it, but they're catered to more of the beekeeping industry than to most of the hobby industry, which is totally okay. So oleic acid is great. Though the last time I ever treated with this method was back in 2005 myself. If I really felt I had to eradicate, I would use oleic acid. Now saying that, I have used rhubarb leaf and natural prevention for the last two years and felt it's been helpful due to the fact I do not have any mites in my hives. So oleic acid is great, either using it naturally or by the Colors Crystalline Solid. It is uh, found around peanuts, pecans, wheat bran, spinach, large amounts of rhubarb leaves and beet greens. It's what gives food that bitter taste. So treat the highs before wintering the highs and at the start of spring. Do not treat when the honey flow is going on. Just like when we feed, you do not treat or feed in the honey flow. That way we do not get anything unnatural in the honey that we're looking to process or possibly sell. So when it comes to using this type of treatment, I would do it just before you winter your beehives, checking to see what kind of mites you may have killed. Then go ahead after your mite check and maybe do oleic acid one more time with the vaporization method. This seems to be one of the greatest ways to use it. Oleic acid is turned into a vapor that enters the soft pads of the mite's feet and travels to the bloodstream, killing the mite. It decimates mites and has changed beekeeping Europe over the last 12 years on mite control, with them eradicating it in huge amounts and controlling the mite interest in the beehives. So make sure that when you come out of the spring, right before you get into really feeding the bees really hard and heavy with pollen to start brood, I would go ahead and use oleic acid then to really vaporize and killing anything that would be in there before capping what happened for brooding. Because once mites get into the combs of the hive and is capped, well, there's not much you can do because, as it said before, a lot of these natural methods are not penetrating through the capping of wax or saturation in any others. That you have to do it a couple times. So use oleic acid a couple times in the spring. That way you're sure that you've eradicated any mites that you'd have before honey flow. And then do it after they've probably infested over the summer times and eradicate over the winter right after you harvest your honey. That way you're not getting anything in any of your honey that you plan to sell. If you're looking to really do treatments or eradicate these pests, I would go with oleic acid. Now, to really learn about oleic acid treatment, um, you should look up Danit, D-A-D-A-N-T. They're a supplier. They build hives. They sell bees. They've done a lot. And they have one of the oldest suppliers in the bee industry for bee goods. They have a great little article, uh, a whole sheet that they've used on how to use oleic acid and a lot of questions on it. So I would look up their method and I would look out about how you use a battery and, and all the stuff. They, they have answered a lot of good questions on how to use oleic acid. So if you're looking to really do some treatment and even eradicate the pest, yes, I would go oleic acid. And I think that's your best bet. And once how you see how you like it and how to treat with it, 
You might want to go to a more mat natural uh, application like I'm doing using some rhubarb polis and some stinging nettle where you're grinding it all up and placing it on the tops of the frames and at the front entrance way to help alleviate those, those pests. So hopefully this has answered your question. I am the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company. And that's about all I have on this one. Really kind of look up some information and, and try to, try to see how to do it. Watch some YouTube videos. Get comfortable with it. Wear a mask. Right? Anytime you use any type of chemical inoculation, be safe. You know, I know you're going to be in a bee suit and stuff, but you should wear ventilation. Get some goggles. Right? Always wear your gloves. Right? Personal protective equipment. Even when they're not using the bees and you're doing stuff like this is very important. So I hope to see many of you at Jack's Nile Mile Farm August 26th through the 29th at his end of the year event. Uh, his events build some of the largest communities I've ever seen. I was just one in Ohio at Greg's Burns, uh, Hogtoberfest learning security. And I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but it was like a, an art of butchering the old way. That Drew Sample of the Sample Hour podcast flew me out to the spectacular event to see the old way of taking a hog was done, from salt packing to cutting down some of the greatest bacon that I've seen. The community of Hillbilly Nation filled with the lumber squatches is super tight up there, and they're the only ones that know what I'm probably saying. But it was uh, so many people there that I've met through the Survival Podcast that it was incredible. So after meeting some of the great get-shit-done heroes that are up there that are feeding their state one farm at a time, I salute you. Remember to buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy from a cottage industry because we all had to start someplace. And always help your fellow man. For one day you're going to need that help too. You know, I, I've said this to Michael, and I'll say it publicly now. He's one of the finest human beings I've ever met. And I know from his own words it wasn't always that way. Uh, Michael, at one point in his life, had a uh, an accident that uh, nearly cost him his life. And he went back to bees and beekeeping and teaching kids. And he found, I think, what is his true passion. And I think we're all grateful for it. So the next time you hear one of these business uh, uh, gurus telling you not to follow your passion, let me just say that Michael Jordan is an example of why you should just hear the following when they start talking about not following your passion. A bullshit. And move on. All right. Just had to say that. Don't know what's a, Just a little bit of the, the twinge of his voice there kind of. Move me to say that. Anyway, um, I, I did leave Stephen Harris out of the intro, and I'm not going to go back and fix it because I don't do a lot of editing on the show, but we have a question for Stephen Harris on storing gas when you don't have you know, a shed or an outbuilding or something like that. With that, hey, Stephen, man, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. I got one here from Brad. It's a short one. It says, hey, Jack and Steve. What's your advice on how to safely store reserve gasoline when a person doesn't have access to either a shed or a garage? Currently, I live in a townhouse and only have a small backyard, approximately 12 foot by 10 foot. I do not have a garage or a shed in the backyard. My roommate is hesitant about me storing several extra cans of gas in the backyard due to the potential fire risk. 
Also, assuming it's safe to store some gas cans in the backyard, what are your suggestions for hiding them in plain view where I live? Right now, there's a potential risk some from some bothersome old blue hairs, meaning old ladies. First of all, um, your roommate scared about the potential fire risk of a gas can in the backyard. You do not let the irrational fears of other people stop you from doing anything that you want to do in your life because if you stop what you're doing in your life for the irrational, unreal fears of other people, you will never, ever get a darn thing accomplished. Saying that I'm scared the gas cans are going to burst into flame is like saying, I don't want to have a firearm in my house for I'm afraid that it might shoot someone. The gun is not going to just magically shoot someone. The gas cans in the backyard are just not going to magically explode in the flames. If there's no source of ignition, no leak, well, no source of ignition, even if there was a leak, nothing's going to happen. You can take a plastic can of gas and you can leave it outside forever if it's tightly sealed up. Nothing's going to happen to it. It's not going to explode. It's not going to catch on fire. Now, what I would suggest over a red can of gas is I would suggest the 15-gallon plastic drums that you can get off of Craigslist, or if you search for barrels and drums in the yellow pages, you can find a place that sells used barrels and drums, and you can get some that had pineapple juice or Coke syrup in them, and they clean them out really, really good. And they sell a 15-gallon drum for between 15 and $30. This, you know, they're going to be white or they're going to be blue. And these don't look like fuel containers. They have no... You know, they don't scream, I have gasoline in them. And the best thing, you can leave these things out forever. In the summertime, they'll puff out. So what? Let them puff out. They're not going to break. In the wintertime, they're going to collapse down a little bit because it's cold. So what? Big deal. They can do this a million times and never get fatigued. Don't worry about it. Just get a good bung wrench. And I got one on solar1234.com from Amazon, and you just tighten down those bungs as hard as you can, but not so hard that the gaskets pop out. And then what you can do is you can get two of these and you can put some boards over it. And you can then have like a little workbench in your backyard. Two barrels and some boards makes a workbench. It doesn't look like you're storing gasoline. No. But they'll weigh about 100 pounds fully loaded with gasoline, and that, you know, it's good enough for you to grunt and move them out to your vehicle. And use the siphon that I tell you how to make the siphon on fuel and fuel storage. Uh, fuel and fuel storage is the class. It's at Stephen1234.com. I'll tell you how to make the world's best siphon that will last for decades. You can siphon the fuel out of the drum and into your car. That's really, really what I would suggest about for storing fuel outside in the long term. I have friends of mine in Tucson, Arizona, 
who have six 15-gallon drums of gasoline out behind their garage, and they go through the summer. They go through 110 degrees heat plus sunshine, and nothing has happened to them since 2003. They're just fine. Make sure you add uh, PRI-G for P- for gasoline or PRI-D for diesel to it and make sure you add it to it every year to keep the gasoline from going bad. Uh, PRI-D and dash G are at solar1234.com. You can easily find them and get them from Amazon. And uh, they are much better than the stable brand of stuff. And also, do not worry about storing gasoline with ethanol. Stop the damn witch hunt on ethanol. An internal combustion engine is like a cannon that doesn't throw its piston away every half cycle. As long as you're spraying in a fuel and air mixture in there that's explosive, it doesn't care if it's ethanol, gasoline, mixture thereof, mouse farts, whatever. If you mix it in there and it'll explode, it will work. So don't worry at all about if my gasoline has ethanol in it. You know, it's, it's a witch hunt. You know, in the 1600s, my sick, my kid got sick. The cow died. The witch must have done it. My chainsaw won't start. My lawn tractor doesn't run right. It must be the ethanol. It's a witch hunt. So just stop it. It's fine. It works great. Long story short. Anyways, that is what I would recommend for hiding in plain sight. The other thing I would do is I would go onto Facebook, onto the Survival Podcast Forum, and I would ask my question on there and say, what are some creative things you would do for hiding 15-gallon or 5-gallon barrels of drum of gasoline in plain sight in the backyard? Some people will probably suggest you build a planter around like a 5-gallon can and uh, you know, make a wood box around it and put a planter on top of it with some plants on it. That's another good thing. Um, just all sorts of different things you can do. You can wrap it up in a black plastic uh, trash bag so people can't see it. That's a five-gallon gas can. Get creative, and I'm sure there's a bunch of things that you can do. But if I were you, I'd have 10 gallons of fuel on hand, definitely, even if I lived in a townhouse for my vehicle. That way, if you're out of fuel, you can put fuel in it. You can still get to work, or you can get out of the area. You can evacuate. Uh, also, you can use your car to power your house. How to power your house from your car. One of my best classes ever with Jack at Stephen1234.com. As always, I have a great inventory of free stuff, free classes, stuff for all of you new people who have just joined. It's at Stephen1234.com. You will absolutely love it. Go there and read the testimonials of what people have to say. You won't believe it. It's really awesome stuff. Just like Jack, I am dedicated to helping you with your preparedness and protecting you. It's a lifelong cause. I believe in it. I do it. And thank you very much for listening to me here on the Survival Podcast. Please email in some more expert questions for me, and I'll be happy to get them on the air and answered. Sometimes they're so simple, I just drop you an email back and tell you the answer, and it doesn't even go on the air. I'm always happy to get your questions. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. It's a witch hunt. The witch did it. Come on, guys.
I'm a product of the 70s and the 80s. You know what's coming, don't you? If you don't know what's coming, it may be confusing. It's about four minutes long. If you're not into Monty Python, you can skip ahead. Which may we burn, huh? Who do you know she is a witch? She looks like one. Bring her forward. I'm not a witch. I'm not a witch. But you are dressed as one. They dressed me up like this. And this isn't my nose. It's a false one. Will? Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat, but she's a witch. Yeah. Did you dress her up like this? No. 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 Yes. 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 Yeah. A bit. Yeah. A bit. A bit. A bit. She has got a wart. What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. We got better. Better anyway. There are ways of telling whether she is a witch. Are there? Well, they tell us. Tell me, what do you do with witches? And what do you burn apart from witches? More witches. Wood. So, why do witches burn? Because they're made of wood. Good. Oh yeah. So. How do we tell whether she is made of wood? Build a bridge out of her. Ah, but can you not also make bridges out of stone? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah, cool. Uh... Uh, does a wood sink in water? No, no, no. It floats. It floats over into the pond. <laughs> what also floats in water? Bread. Apples. Uh, very small rocks. Cider. A great gravy. Cherries. Mud. A churches, churches, lead, lead, a duck. Exactly. So logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood, and therefore a witch. A witch. Very good. We shall use my larger scales. so wise in the ways of science. I am Arthur, King of the Britons. My liege. Good tonight. Will you come with me to Camelot and join us at the round table? My liege, I would be honoured. What is your name? Bedivere, my liege. Then I dub you Sir Bedivere, Knight of the Round Table. Okay, look, it's Friday. A weekend's coming. We have a relaxation downtime coming. We have a whole holiday season coming. 
you got to freaking laugh once in a while, guys. There's a lot of scary shit out there. There's a lot of reasons to, to make sure we continue to be prepared. Uh, who the hell knows what's going to come next? But if we can't at least crack a smile once in a while, what the hell are we trying to survive for? That's why I throw some pop culture stuff like that in there once in a while. Anyway, uh, the next question I have is really a question. It was a email directing me to an article. Uh, it says, you've probably seen this, so I apologize if it's wasting your time. And it's a blog called interfluidity.com, and it's an article that was put out this year, and this came from Eddie. Eddie, no, I hadn't seen this. I've seen a lot on this concept, but I hadn't seen this article. And it actually goes to a concept that I'd never really had thought about before. This is about universal basic income. Now, I want to start out with a few things. I am not advocating for universal basic income. Universal basic income would basically be that every uh, adult in the country gets a check every month from the government, $800, bucks, $2,000, bucks, something like that, and then you say, okay, that's it. There's no welfare, there's no food stamps, and everybody gets it. Rich people get it, poor people get it. I mean, rich people are going to give it back with taxes, but... Everybody gets this universal basic income. And there are some things like, well, once you get over a certain amount of income, let's say a quarter million dollars a year for an individual, half a million for a couple, you don't get it anymore. But if you ever drop below it, you start getting it again, right? And there's lots of different ways. But most of these proposals are just that everybody gets it. That way you don't have to deal with that crap, and we just tax the snot out of people at upper income levels. I'm going to tell you right now that mathematically – This doesn't work with any kind of uh, amount of money that people could actually live on, because that's what's supposed to be a, a, enough to exist on. Maybe not exist happily, but provide a roof over your head and eat three meals a day and be able to take basic care of yourself. I'm going to say at about $2,000 a month, about $24,000 a year, you could do that. I've done the math. Um, to do that for every adult over 18 in the United States would cost about $5.8 trillion dollars. The current budget for the United States government is about $3.8 trillion. So it's, it's almost double, it's not quite, but it's almost double the current total spending, and then you get nothing else, no Department of Defense. Everything else the government does goes away. Hmm, wait a minute. Maybe that's not such a bad thing, but you get it. Like That can't happen in our current state, right? We just It's not going to happen. So it's an additional $5.8 trillion. If you give everybody a grand, well, maybe that's enough to sort of kind of get by. Then you're, you're looking at about, uh, let's call it uh, $2.7 uh, uh, trillion and change, right? So almost the full budget. And you could give everybody $500, bucks and we could probably actually sort of kind of do it. But let's just go with this thought experiment at two grand. Now, I want to explain what I'm going to do with this. Sometimes we sit around and say, what if you could only have one gun and you had to survive in the woods with it? And you just had to choose between a .22 and a shotgun. Okay, or you had to choose between a 12-gauge and a 20-gauge. Well, you don't have to do that, and you're probably never going to have to make that choice, but it's an interesting thought experiment because we learn from thought experiments. I'm approaching it from that angle. I do think this could be done. Again, I'm not saying it should be done. I don't want to hear any of this shit about being a socialist or something like that. It could be done um, with a radical shift to the underlying economic system and how, and how we handle monetary creation. 
Um, there are ways to make it happen. I think that we might be moving to a place where the wind is blowing that way, and whether you or I or the fence post wants it, that's where it might go anyway. I would also point something out before I get into this discussion. But everybody on government assistance will sit around and do nothing. Okay, wait a minute. 49.9% of the population in the United States today is on some form of government assistance. We're about to crater over 50%. Some people want to be, some people don't want to be, but that's, that's the reality. So we already are halfway there. And yes, that includes Social Security and all, which would also go away. If you had a system like this. So let's just, for farts and chits and giggles, imagine that by some method or madness, whether you want it or not, the government had come up with a way to logistically pull off handing every man and woman, 18 and older, $2,000 a month. Because that'll make the thought experiment interesting. I know runaway inflation, et cetera. Let's just, let's put all of our bias and prejudice on the shelf, because the the premise from this article, and I'll link to it because it's very long and I'm not going to read it, because uh, it'll take 15 minutes just to read it if I read it. it the, the basic premise is a lot of people in the sustainability movement want to put everybody in cities because they think they're more sustainable, and, and maybe they're not. And I happen to agree with the author that, no, they're probably not. Uh, the, the, the sustainability people say, well, since it's easier to get resources to everybody, less infrastructure, uh, people can walk where they need to go, et cetera, it's, it's, it's a better thing. And he says, well, maybe, you know, actually small thriving communities all over would be a better thing. And he also talks about how people say if you gave every adult $2,000, $1,500, whatever, uh, $1,200 a month and said, okay, that's it. There's no welfare. There's no nothing. That's what everybody gets. And then you can work harder that we would have, you know, just basically ghettos everywhere and people sitting around doing nothing and, and, and what have you. Uh, he, he says he doesn't think so. And I, I don't either. And I would just like to propose this to you so that we can have an interesting thought experiment here at the end of today's show. If I phoned you up and said, hey, um, TSP's doing really good, and I've looked out and I've seen that you in your life – uh, are doing really good things, and you just assume that I'm talking to you as an individual, no matter who you are right now. And I've decided that we have enough money to give one person in the audience two thousand dollars a month and see what they can do with their life. And uh, and I, I just I'm going to cut you a check for the rest of your life. I've set up a trust. It'll never run out of money. It's guaranteed. It's just, if the sun comes up, you're getting a check once a month for two thousand dollars. How many of you would not only quit your job? But go find some rat hole apartment to live in and do nothing for the rest of your life. And most of you are going, well, I think it'd be an incredible opportunity, but that's not what I would do. I might even take a couple months off, figure out what I want to do or what have you, but I'm not going to not do anything. I'm not going to live. That's not 24 grand, right? Because if that was the case, you'd be working at like a convenience store 30 hours a week and you could probably make that much money and, and be okay. So you're going to keep working. And you'll say, well, but but that's because I have a work ethic. And, all. and so do all the other people that are still working. Because anybody that really wants to can lay down like a slug right now and not work and find some form of existence to exist on. Because half the people are already on some form of assistance. So I agree that people wouldn't. If you gave me $2,000 a month for the rest of my life, I'm not going to sit down and do nothing. I mean, I crossed that income threshold a long time ago. So I'm going to assume that that premise 
that the author's making is correct. So what a lot of people have said, well, this dream of moving people to the cities would happen even faster if everybody had this universal basic income because then people could walk around and be hipsters and drink past Blue Ribbon and, and whatever. And he says maybe not so. Maybe it would actually encourage people to move to small rural communities and people that are living in these communities would stop leaving. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I'd just like to paint a picture for you. Again, this is a mental exercise. If you try to economically do this under the current economic paradigm, it will bankrupt the country in one year. Okay? So, again, I'm not advocating for it. We're postulating if we can figure out a way. Because we have no idea what we could do because we've never tried. So let's just say we could. Let's just say that what we decided was that human beings is a basic human right in a country with all the resources that America has, um, should have at least the right to a basic housing, basic levels of comfort from a standpoint of being able to utilize the resources that are here, um, and you know, basic food and water. That's just everybody should have that. And think about it. To help your, because I know you're going to struggle with this. So think about it as a tribal life. Think about we take away all the modern society and we go back to when it was Native Americans and you're now one of those Native Americans. And basically what that means is, well, you get to live with the tribe and you have to do certain things to be a good tribal member, but there's buffalo, so there's food, so you get a share of the meat. Okay, and you get there's stream, there's water in the stream. Nobody's going to tell you you can't have some of the water. And housing is fabricated from you know wigwams or teepees or whatever. And you 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 know you might have to work a little bit to put your house together, but you have a space to put it. No one's going to tell you you can't have a space. And I think when people think about it from a tribal standpoint, uh, from a, you know a pre-industrial standpoint, people say, yeah, well that makes sense. Everybody should have access to food and water and space. There's plenty for everybody. Now you move in, an industrial society into it, and you say, well, it doesn't. The model doesn't work anymore. Well, what if you just use an economic script like money to allocate a portion that's a basic, a basic right as a being? So we're thinking about it that way. Again, it doesn't work. It can't work. I know. Let's imagine we can make it work. Let's imagine there's a way to make it work. Now, what happens when you do it? Everybody sits down and gets drunk and masturbates all day. That's one of the things the guy says in the article. I, I don't think so. I know that even when I was 18, if when I turned 18 I knew this was going to happen, my life might have turned out exceptionally differently exceptionally differently. I may have stayed in Pennsylvania. I might be running a small little homestead in Pennsylvania right now, and I may have never done the Survival Podcast. And maybe all of the people that I've helped with it would have been helped. And all the people that I helped along the way as I came through business and all the things that I learned as I went through different uh, businesses and careers and professions, maybe those things wouldn't have happened. Maybe I would have my son or my wife. Because you change one thing in the fabric of, of the past, and the future has changed as well, right? But that doesn't mean that I wouldn't be happy. It doesn't mean that I would have learned a lot. It doesn't mean I would have done something meaningful or impactful. It doesn't mean that the drive, the fire that was in my belly would have ever been any less. 
Maybe I would have never joined the army. You know, maybe my good friend that I mentioned earlier this week that that is at a point where he's he's thought about killing himself multiple times would never have gotten to that state because he would have never joined the army. And I think it was the beginning of him being screwed up. So I don't know. I don't know what would happen exactly. But what would happen is a trend, you know, to me individually, what would happen is a trend. I mean, think about it this way. Remember when I've talked multiple times about building a community? Well, let's say that all of a sudden this this thing happened. Everybody gets $2,000 a month. What if I got some investors together then and we found kind of a rundown town where pe- most of the people have left? And I know where some of them are. And there's some of them in some pretty good climates too. And I said, instead of building a farm, we're going to build a whole freaking town. We're going to go in and we're going to buy out all of this dilapidated infrastructure. We're going to rehab it. And we're going to start selling houses and renting properties and inviting people to come in and live. And if you want to just come in and live off your two grand and be a hipster and drink past Blue Ribbon beer, you can. We don't care. But if you want to come in and, and start a business, we're going to create an environment that's conducive to business. Now, we can't make it Libertopia because we still have to deal with the state, the county, and the federal government. But... From a town standpoint, we're just going to kind of revitalize this place. How many of you right now, if I did that, would be, man, I'd really like to live there, but I can't. But how many of you right now, if you had a $2,000 a month annuity, would say, well, hell yeah, I'm in. I don't even know what I'm going to do yet, but I'm going to go figure out something to do. And when you got there, once you figured out how you're going to live and got your place to live and started out, and let's say because you only had $2,000 a month, you had to rent a little one-bedroom apartment, Five, six hundred square feet, no land, what have you. Maybe it's a, a second story thing or something. You get a little porch. How many of you would say, well, that's enough. Screw it. I quit. I came all this way to just live in a little porch and, and drink beer on the porch and, and hang out with people. Most of you would say, I want to, I want to do something. You'd look for a job. You'd start a business. You'd start trying to figure out how can I make more so I can have more. And people will say, well, in, in, in the, the, the welfare state, that's not what happens. Well, why? Why? Let's say that right now you're on some form of government assistance getting $2,000 a month. What happens if you take a shot at a business and you start making $1,300 a month with it? Well, you, you lose your government assistance, including possibly you know health care benefits or whatever, And so you now have less because you tried. And then what if that fails? Well, now you can't get back what you had. So what's the incentive for someone? What's the incentive for someone that's on any of these this, these government programs to do something? What happens to you? Even the money you earned, Social Security. You're 65. You said, you know what? Screw it. I've had enough. I want to quit my full-time job. And I want to start drawing my Social Security. And then you start diddling around with yourself because you're not done yet. You're still fogging a mirror. You still have a life to live. And you say, well, I could start this little business. And let's say you start making $25,000, $30,000 a year. And you're a person that was making $100,000 a year. It's small potatoes. But you're engaged with your community. You're maybe creating a job for somebody. Well, your Social Security's gone. You don't get any until you stop making money. So in every instance, when we put people on any sort of government assistance, what we say to them is, and if you do anything for yourself, you'll lose it. 
The, the exception is people that are discharged from the military for a medical retirement and are handed their military retirement early and young in life while they can still do stuff and go out and build stuff. Like, oh, I don't know, ITS Tactical that's employing, I don't know, a freaking dozen employees or something like that right now that my buddy Brian's running. Yeah, he was in the military. He went through Hell Week. He was in SEAL school. He got severely injured. He was medically discharged from the Navy. He was given a portion of his pay as a medical retirement. He was still a young guy. He was still capable. He just wasn't military capable anymore. I guess at the SEAL level anyway. And since there's no danger of loss, he builds a thriving company. How many more people like that would you like out there today? Building thriving companies and communities. See, I think if you can actually figure out how to say, we're going to make sure that people's basic needs are taken care of without stealing shit from other people to do it. That's the key. Without creating a class divide. And then say, now you can go and be as successful as you want, and this is always here, and it's never going to be taken from you. You could revitalize all of these small communities across America. We could stop breaking families up. Think about how many people you say, well, you know, what are you doing for Christmas? Well, I'm going home to see my mom. Well, where's your mom? 800, 1,000 miles away or more. And I get to see all the family. Oh, they all live there? Well, no, Uncle Jim comes in from here. And, and, and all these families are spread all across this huge, wonderful country because Uncle Jim went to Seattle because that's where opportunities were. You went to Jacksonville, Florida because that's where the opportunities were. You know, I came to Central Texas because for me that's where the opportunities were. What the hell? I mean, now that I have this show, if I can have a DSL connection, I can do this show and do what I do from the freaking lunar surface. But what the hell was ever going to pay me $100,000 a year in Possible, Pennsylvania? What? What was ever going to get me out of poverty in Possible, Pennsylvania? What was I going to do? Go work for Quando Concrete? Go work on the bottling line at Yingling Brewery? And there was a line a mile long, people trying to get those jobs to make maybe, what, twice minimum wage and get a free case of beer a week or something? I, I couldn't stay there. I had ambitions. And I also just didn't want to live hand to mouth and live in a room in my dad's house. I had to leave. But what if I had had the option of getting a small piece of land of my own, putting a little small house on it of my own, and I knew I could afford to do that. I might have done it differently. How many people might do it differently? How many places in America might family reunion be every Sunday dinner instead of once a year or once a decade if people had their basic needs cared for? Again, I know you think that's socialism. But that's not socialism. Socialism is making everybody equal. Socialism is telling everybody what they get. Under this system, if they, it was, and I don't think they'll do it right. Understand that. But if, if this system was done right, if you want to go blow your brains out with, with booze and drugs in the first week and be penniless for three weeks, go ahead. No one gives a shit. You want charity to help you? They're probably going to want you to try to put your shit back together before they invest in you very much. If under this system, 
You want to get by on what you're given, be miserly with your money, buy a little travel trailer and live next to a creek somewhere, as long as you're not bothering anybody, fine. You want to build a multi-million dollar business, fine. And think about all the complaints that people aren't paid well for the work that they do. If you had $2,000 a month coming in or $1,000 a month coming in, might you then at least when somebody says, well, I want you to do a job cleaning toilets, and you just need it a little bit more, still say, you know what? You're going to have to pay better than that, or I'm not doing it. And might we then have to find other solutions to getting these things done? And might we then evolve further as a species? See, I think this is actually the most brilliant idea in the world. The problem is every method being proposed to execute it is horrible and will have horrible consequences. We'll tax the rich and the corporations. Then the rich and the corporations will go to another place where they don't do that to them, and you'll have no money. Again, under our current system, you would bankrupt the nation in a single year. So again, don't think I'm saying we should just do this. But what if we created an economic system that was designed for this? What if we created a resource allocation-based currency that said, this is enough for everybody to exist, and if you manage your piece poorly, you're out. You've run out. Sorry. But if you manage it wisely, you have it. And since there's so much abundance available through creativity and innovation, you can have as much of it as you want. And I believe we actually could do it. We could do it with a blockchain-style currency where the government spent the currency into existence and then hedged against it through a, t a system based on a national sales tax. Because when I give you $1,000, $2,000, whatever, and you spend it, and it's taxed at, let's say, 10%, how many times do I have to tax it before I'm paid back 100%? The answer is 10 times. But you only pay the tax on things that you choose to purchase and ways that you choose to spend the money. I know I'm too generous with your money. But no, we're talking about money that somebody gave you. You didn't work for it. But I worked for the rest of the money. Sure you did. But how many more customers would you have? If you're, if you're working for a company and you're an employee, how many more customers would they have? See, this can work. The reason it'll never happen this way... There's, there's, there's no incentive for the people that control us to ever do it. I guess I've gone on long enough. But I do think the author's basic premise that some sort of a universal income would actually strengthen and build small towns, small communities, small cities is one that's absolutely the case. Because how many people live in New York City because they want to versus because that's where their job is? How many people grow up, love their family, love their friends, love the little town that they live in, and move a thousand miles away because they just wanted to? Why do they move? Because that's where the job is. That's where the school that they started in is, whatever. It's possible. You and I will probably never live to see it, but thought experiments are interesting. And remember, the things we do record and postulate today may be used tomorrow. 
by people that use the hindsight of history for the positive rather than the negative. Just some things to think about. With that, if you like this show and the work that I do, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. You'll see all the great benefits and all the great discounts and all the other great stuff you get by being a member of the Support Brigade. Next up today, uh, please consider supporting our show in the easy, painless, no-cost way. And that's simply by uh, by doing your shopping, when you do your shopping on Amazon, by going to tspaz.com first. T-S-P-A-Z dot com, tspaz, for T-S-P-A-Z, Amazon, right? Tspaz dot com. Go there, click a link, go to Amazon, buy whatever the hell you're going to buy. Don't worry about anything else. Once you've gone through tspaz.com first, we're going to get credit for your sale. You're not going to pay a dime extra It's not going to cost you nothing. It doesn't even really cost you maybe two seconds of extra time is it. And you support the show that you listen to every day. That's pretty easy. It's pretty simple. And I do put up an item of review every day. Today I got some food up there for you. I got Kirkland Signature Brand Walnuts. Um, and they're not the greatest walnuts in the world. They're just good walnuts. And the best deal that I found on walnuts uh, from uh, anywhere that I can get them uh, has been this brand. Uh, really, really, you know, good stuff, uh, and shipped for free, uh, on Amazon Prime. And I'm gonna give you some stuff here that's in the, the article I wrote up today that you can do with any walnuts, no matter where you get them, because that's what I try to do at my little reviews and articles is give you education information. This, of course, being on food. So one of the big things is it's a nut. You know, if you have a nut, um, then, uh, You can eat that on the paleo primal low carb lifestyle. You have to control your portions because it's still extremely nutrient dense, high fat. So you can overdo it, but by you know take a handful and put the rest away, you've got a snack food. And they're pretty good with uh, beef jerky, believe it or not. If you like yogurt cheese, they're pretty damn good with yogurt cheese. One of the things I'll do, I'll cut up like sweet peppers, like red and yellow, green bell pepper, uh, as though they're chips, and I'll put yogurt cheese on that, and I'll put a piece of uh, walnut on that. It's Freaking fantastic. So that's good. Uh, they're great as a salad topper. And the best way to do that is you throw them in a dry skillet and toast them until they just start to brown. Let them cool. Hit them with a little salt while they're hot so it sticks. Put those over your salad. Crumble them over there. Really, really good. I do a spinach salad. It's kind of like my take on a Waldorf. You make basically just a big pile of spinach. Use crumbled blue cheese, some sliced green apples, some bacon, some boiled eggs. I like to do my quail eggs, boil them. Peel them and cut them in half, so a little half eggs all in there. And uh, you throw these walnuts on that and give that a toss with your favorite salad dressing. It's you know, like a spinach salad, kind of sort of like a Waldorf salad. Pretty damn good. Um, and you can do just cool things with walnuts. Like Here's something that I do once in a while that I think is just like taking the most simple thing over the top. Um, start again by toasting your walnuts, but this time give them a rough chop, so they're little or small pieces. Uh, probably about a quarter walnut-sized pieces. And uh, once they get browned, throw some bacon grease in the pan and melt the bacon grease in. And then throw in a big handful of trimmed and cleaned green beans. And saute the green beans until they're just done. That means not wilted and pale, but bright green and a little bit crisp in the center still. Um, and then remove that from the pan, throw some bacon crumbles on the top of it and hit a little bit of real Parmesan cheese, hard-grated Parmesan cheese over it. Fantastic. It's green beans. But the walnuts give you the crunch and the flavor and the toast, and the Parmesan just melts a little bit, and the bacon grease gives you the saltiness, and it's paleo as it can be. Those are some things you can do with walnuts. 
And if you want to get walnuts at a good price, go to tspaz.com and check out the review today. And again, they're Kirkland uh, Signature, which is the same. You can get them at Costco, too, if you have a Costco card. Don't be afraid to do that. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, I put this information out for informational purposes. But again, if you could do your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com, I'd really appreciate it. It does help support the show. And again, this time of year, man, it's Christmas. I know a lot of you are doing a lot of shopping. If you're buying it on Amazon, just think of the, the TSP and the impact we have on you and tspaz.com before you do. Uh, next up, song of the day. So I was looking for a song today, thinking kind of getting in the Christmas spirit and all. And this song's played a lot around Christmas, but it's not a, really a Christmas song. It's uh, by Dan Fogelberg, and it's called Same Old Lang Syne. All right, Same Old Lang Syne. And it's... This kind of sad song, and it's just a perfect song for this guy's vocals. I've always liked Dan Fogelberg an awful lot. But it's it's a story. If you've never heard the song, or if you've heard it but never really listened to it, the basic concept is he's he's home for the holidays in his little town, and this is based on a true story. And he runs into an ex-girlfriend from high school that he still has feelings for, And they, uh, they start talking and, and, and give each other a hug and they pick up a six pack of beer and, uh, you know, uh, just sit in her car and drink it and talk and, uh, lament that, you know, they went different ways and she's currently married and, uh, he, uh, she's, she's not exactly happy in her marriage or whatever. And I'd like to just kind of read to you the origins of the song and the true story about it from Wikipedia. Fogelberg said on his official website the song was autobiographical. He was visiting his family back home in Peora, Illinois in the mid-1970s when he ran into an old girlfriend at a convenience store. After Fogelberg's death from prostate cancer in 2007, the woman about whom he wrote the song came forward and told her story. Her name was Jill Grilliak. She was Fol she and Fogelberg, Fogelberg dated in high school when she was Jill Anderson, and she explained in the Peoria Journal Star, December 22, 2007. They were part of Woodruff High School class of 69, but went to different colleges. After college, Jill got married and moved to Chicago, and Dan went to Colorado to pursue music. On December 24, 1975, they were each back in Peoria with their families for Christmas. Jill went out for eggnog, and Dan looked for whipping cream for Irish coffee. The only place open was a convenience store at the top of Abington Hill, where they had their encounter located at 1302 East Fry Avenue. Today, the store is still in business and named the Short Stop Food Mart. They bought a six-pack of beer and drank it in their car for two hours while they talked. When Fogelberg was alive, he had trouble recalling whether the meeting was with the ex-girlfriend was 75 or 76, though he was leaning towards 75, the year confirmed by his ex-girlfriend after his passing. Five years later, Gilead heard the same old Lang sign on the radio while driving to work, but she kept quiet about it, as Fogelberg also refused to disclose her identity. Her main fear was that coming forward could disrupt Fogelberg's marriage. I think that's pretty honorable. Looking at the lyrics, Gilead cites two inaccuracies. Her eyes are green, not blue. That's probably just because they rhyme. And her husband was a physical education teacher, not an architect. That's probably because it made a better story. And Fogelberg was unlikely to know his profession anyway. On the line, she would have liked to say she loved the man, but she didn't like to lie. Gilrick would not talk about it, but by the time of the song's release, she had divorced her husband. 
And when you listen to the song, you'll hear that they actually the, 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 they try to kind of really feel the way they used to for each other, and there's an affinity and affection there, but it's it's just not there. And, and the reason I decided to do this song today, one kind of because it is played around the holidays and all, and it is set in the the Christmas time, but a lot of times we look back and we lament what we didn't do in the past, and we think if only. And many times we're never presented with the opportunity to go back and really see if that was right for us. And sometimes we are. And sometimes these things happen. Two people that dated in high school 10 years later end up in the same place at the same time and they rekindle it. And it can just not only be a relationship, it can be anything like that. Sometimes people do go home again. But just as often, it's not what you thought it would be the lamentations go away and you're grateful for what you have today. That's a good way to live. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
as I turn to make my way back home. The snow 